Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. If it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. That understanding works for you, so therefore it is absolutely right for you. All beliefs have become only relatively true, and of course to the world, religion is just some personalized experience, not a divine revelation, and the church is catching the disease. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Let's do this. It's the Wretched Radio Mail Call Delivery Bag Q&A Infotainment Nationwide Extravaganza featuring your voicemails, correspondences, communiques, dispatches, memorandums, and missives. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? What we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. You have 1,200 messages. It is a bit above average. Now here's your host, Todd Freakishly Tall Friel. The mail is here! Ooh, this is Wretched Radio. Send it, type it, and hit that send button with your questions, comments, conundrums, snarks, sermon stories, articles, pretty much anything wretched. Send to idea at wretched.org. All righty. Well, we start the day with an email from Tony. Todd, is gluttony a forgotten sin in American culture? And why do you think even churches have been have fallen into it? Yeah, well, that's not the only sin we have a tendency to overlook, but we would do well to let the Bible define what gluttony is because we have a tendency and there's 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 a reason for it that we connect body weight with food consumption. So if you if you're gaining weight, you're eating too much. Yeah, it could be because you're too sedentary. Nevertheless, there is a connection there, but but the number of calories that you consume isn't necessarily gluttony. It can be, but it isn't necessarily. What does the Bible say is the problem with gluttony? Is it that we occasionally eat too much? Well, we all do that, don't we? Does that make you a glutton? You'd say, well, probably not. So the first stop must be the heart. Why would an individual go to the fridge to find comfort and not to their savior? That's a problem. And, and that's, that is what makes eating food gluttonous in that it's idolatrous. The second component is the, the absolute positive need for food to find comfort will lead you to do whatever is necessary to anyone in order to find your comfort. In other words, you're willing to lie you're you're willing to be deceptive. You're even willing to harm somebody because you've got to have that whatever it is, the big piece of pie. That's the component that makes it gluttonous. Not that we consume 2,200 calories or whatever the rule is or whatever your body weight index is. Be careful with that. It's the government that makes that decision. Back in the old days, we used to say somebody, for instance, like, well, okay, typically farm boys. Can we use the name farm boys or is that pejorative these days? <laughs> He's a raw bone fella, just a big kid. There are some people, they're just big. Er, then what we would say is, well, that's kind of, you know, the average looks like that. Well, some people are just big. So let's be careful how quick we are to slap that label on. And let's be biblical about it because overeating, it's, it has to have those other two components in order for us to start addressing the issue of gluttony. So why don't we address it as a church? Maybe it's the same reason that we don't address D-I-V-O-R-C-E much these days, do we? Have you heard a sermon on divorce? I haven't. May I bet there's even pastors who go, you know, I think we'll skip doing exegesis on 1 Corinthians because that whole divorce thing gets a little bit dicey. 
Well, so many people, they do indeed get divorced. Don't forget, it is not practicing Christians, biblical evangelicals, who divorce at the same rate of pagans. Remember, Nancy Piercy poked a hole in that nonsense. Evangelicals, genuinely born-again people, they don't get divorced nearly at the rate that the pagans do, or mere professing Christians. Nevertheless, there are so many people, could have been before they got saved, whatever, that have gone through divorces. Furthermore, there's another reason divorce isn't spoken about a lot and preached on a lot. It's dicey. It's very complex because you can, I'm not saying you don't, but but you're making, you're making your way through Jesus' words on divorce. And everybody sitting who's been through it or knows somebody or whose parents got divorced, they're listening about their circumstance. You're talking about that. And they could be misapplied and all kinds of mischief could ensue. So I understand that that's a challenge to it, but we can't let culture and we can't let the prevalence of a sin deter us from preaching about it. How often should we be talking about the sin of gluttony? I think that's up to every pastor. And I, th- I think there's priorities of sins. There's certainly priorities of theological issues. So we let the pastor choose those things. By the way, speaking of theological issues, you might disagree with this. You might not. There's a new book out that was is written by somebody. I can't remember the fellow's name. He's a free grace Baptist. So far more Wesleyan in his understanding of God's sovereignty and election and salvation versus a Calvinist position. And the book is actually being heralded in a number of circles, both, both, both sides of the argument, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And, and one reviewer said that this is the most important thing that we can talk, the most important thing, understanding time and the omniscience of God. Uh, I actually would be more inclined to rephrase that and say, that's actually about the diciest territory that we can step into. You were going to try to figure out how God was thinking 17 bazillion years ago. I don't, look, theologians, knock yourself out on that. But that, I don't know that that's like an important issue, a crucial issue. I think it's fraught with landmines. And my inclination would be more to say, you know, he's in the heavens and his ways aren't our ways. And he thinks much deeper thoughts, needless to say, than I do. And there's some stuff, hey, bless your heart. And I probably mean that in a Southern way. Bless your heart. If you want to tiptoe into that territory, I I just don't know how edifying and beneficial it is. The Bible's pretty silent about it. So a fair amount of speculation needs to go into it. It seems to me that when we go about the business of trying to think about God, the main things are the main things. The plain things are the plain things are the main things. What's the big stuff? Let's focus on that. And please focus on sending uh, your response or whatever you want to idea at wretched.org. All right. Uh, This is an interesting question from Amato, who says, Todd, how should I go about addressing my pastor regarding his wife dressing immodestly? I feel like it's being a bad witness to the church, but I also understand it's a delicate thing to talk to a man about his wife. (laughs) And it's even more delicater when it's your pastor. But Paul told Timothy, this is the principle. You treat the man like a father. If you believe that there's an issue, go to the man with your concern. Remember the steps that your heart must be right. 
if you're just burning up because it's like, oh, look with it. Now the teenage girls are starting to wear. You're not ready. You're just not ready. If you are not listening to Dr. Greg Gifford's series on conflict resolution, you really owe it to yourself to do that. I don't know what it means to owe it to yourself, but do it. Go to the Transform podcast. It has to, my desire in, in confronting somebody has to be biblically determined. Am I doing it because I'm agitated? Don't do it. Am I doing it because that just happens to be a pet peeve? Don't do it. Am I doing it because I'm offended? Don't do it. Instead, I'm concerned. I think there could be a problem and I desire to help. And that means you're probably going to want to get your heart ready. You're going to want to go in asking questions. You just don't, it could be the pastor's blind spot. I, I don't know. And I don't know how this lady is dressing to, to be able to comment on it. But the desire in bringing an issue to somebody, and by the way, these corrections, whether it's in the church or in the home, what's the point? What are you driving at? What do you want to see come from this? What, what, what do you want the guy to do? Now, you're probably saying, well, I want her to dress more modestly. That is not a lofty enough goal. This is probably, potentially, a heart issue. What's causing the immodesty? That should be your desire. And when we frame it in those terms, suddenly our heart becomes a little bit more tender, a little bit more compassionate, because we realize that we are dealing with spiritual issues. Whatever your issue is, send it to idea at wretched.org. All right, this next one is from Danny, who says, Todd, I, I realize children can and sometimes should be part of worship, but should children be part of leading worship? No. <laughs> now, can do I think a church is doing something sinful when the kids get up and they sing the song that they've been learning? I just don't I don't think so. What that's different than okay, I know they're 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 presenting worship. I get that. When you say leading worship, we're we're talking about an authority position. Right, an ongoing. An ongoing. Look, kids can worship in the service. And they, they should be singing along. If they happen to do something that's a, a collective where they present it as a little choir, I don't think that that's a sin. But that's a far cry from leading worship. When you get have the kids get up there on the platform and the congregation is supposed to follow them, I'm sorry. I, I, just, I just don't think uh, that children can occupy those offices of leadership that, that should be in place when somebody is on a platform. I know it gets a little tricky with the worship leader and all of that jazz. Uh, I, I just I just don't think that that's the role of children. Children aren't supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be led. And I think that that would be the case inside of a worship service. By the way, have you had that conversation lately in your church about whether the kids should always be in the worship service or or do you just not want to start a fight? <laughs> this is Wretched Radio. You're familiar with this sound. You're sitting in church. Your pastor is preaching. You have your John MacArthur study Bible open. The pastor is reading the scripture. And all of a sudden you hear everybody in church turning the page because they all have the same MacArthur study Bible. Why? Because it is so helpful to be able to read study notes underneath the verses to really grasp what God's Word is trying to teach. How would you 
like to share the joy of putting a John MacArthur Study Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines, they typically make about $12 to $15 per, not hour, per day. It's a luxury item, and it would be such a blessing, $25 a Bible, four Bibles, $100, or perhaps you could send a Bible to a brother or sister in the Philippines every single month. Would you please consider doing that to bring joy to our brothers and sisters? Wretched.org slash Bible. Question, are you tired of the same old boring TV shows? Well, there is something that's not like anything else on Christian TV. It's transformed and it's back for season number two. You get to be a fly on the wall as you witness real biblical counseling sessions tackling issues like depression, anxiety, OCD, and others. These are real people with real issues being offered real solutions by our hosts, Dr. Greg Gifford and Dale Johnson. So if you're looking for something different, you know, a show that glorifies God and demonstrates the sufficiency of His Word, then Transform is for you. It's a one-of-a-kind production that provides the hope and relief that only the Bible can give. The world is full of hurting people, even Christians, and many are completely unaware of biblical counseling and the answers it can provide. So join us for Transform Season 2, the show that will transform your walk with Christ and leave a profound and lasting impact on your life. Get your hands on it now and also consider grabbing the Sunday School curriculum for your church. You can find it at transform.org or the Wretched Store at wretched.org. I know how you're feeling at the thought of switching from traditional health insurance to MediShare, which is affordable biblical health sharing. That's a big decision, and it can be kind of scary, which is why Mrs. Freel and I researched MediShare and determined, yeah, we can trust this ministry, Christians paying for the health needs of other Christians. It's a magnificent ministry, 98% member satisfaction rate. It's amazing. The average family saves $500 per month. If that sounds intriguing, and I hope it does, please do your research. Visit metashare.com slash wretched, metashare.com slash wretched, or call them and talk to a really nice person at 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE. Important dates in Christian history. 1540. The Society of Jesus is approved by the Vatican. Founded by Ignatius Loyola, the Jesuit order sent out zealous missionaries throughout the world, counteracting the Reformation and bringing Roman Catholic Christianity to the Americas. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Do you know what that is? <laughs> Besides annoying? <laughs> This is Wretched Radio. Without you, I wouldn't have this stuff. What are these noise-making things? A stack of papers with different theological articles, cultural issues, things that are happening around the globe. Wouldn't find them without you. So would you be so kind when you see something wretched to send it along with your questions, comments, conundrums, snarks to idea at wretched.org. All right. This question is from Jacob, who says, Todd, in your recent video about manliness, you mentioned the importance of having an older man to disciple a young man. Uh, I've never had someone teach me how to be a man. 
He says he's 16, and he says, uh, my dad isn't a Christian. While there are men at my church who I do admire, I don't have a close relationship with any of them, and I want to know how to approach someone to mentor me, but I'm also worried it might be a little bit awkward or inconvenient since they have their own family. Right, sure. Uh, Let's not skip over dad straight away. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be a good idea to find an elder man in your church, an older fellow who can indeed download some of his wisdom. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't look to your dad just because he's an unbeliever. He knows some stuff. And and furthermore, he he will do the best job in keeping you from danger because he cares deeper than anybody else. So even though he's not a Christian, I, I wouldn't say that that's a reason to just go looking elsewhere without letting him teach you some stuff. Even pagans learn things. So look to your dad. And if that ain't enough and it's not coming from a biblical perspective, which it won't, then I would encourage you to simply identify a man at your church. And I would be inclined to preface it, sir, um... I just want you to know, I recognize how awkward this could be. And I just want you to know, um, if you say no, I won't be offended because I understand schedules, your busyness, you've got a family. But having said that, I'm in need of somebody who can disciple me. I'm not even sure what that looks like exactly. And it might vary based on schedules. But would you be willing to help me? If you've identified a godly man, he's not going to go, Get thee behind me, child. He's going to be flattered. You identified me? You'd like me to do that? Now, it might mean that his schedule is going to prohibit his participation in your discipling. And you can accept that. But I just, I will tell you this. What you'd be requesting, politely asked, with a little bit of a, I think, revealing an understanding that you get that this could be awkward or it could be an imposition that you frame it with that, oh, it's it's not weird at all. It just isn't weird at all. If a guy does respond weirdly to you, you've probably identified the wrong fellow, a genuinely godly man. <laughs> Jimmy, if a 16-year-old approached me, uh-huh. I, I would be like, uh, me? <laughs> you, you think you can learn me? I would say the same thing if they approached you. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. So much for that raise. <laughs> Why do people keep sending that? By the way, are they still sending? That? Oh. <laughs> Don't stop. I see it a lot. Idea at wretched.org. All right. Uh, this next and good on you, 16 year old. This next one is from Caleb, who says, uh, Todd, I've been reflecting on church history, particularly the early church era before the Reformation. I've come across figures like Augustine and Athanasius who were Catholic, but have influenced modern Protestantism, Protestist, you, know, you. you know what I'm saying, yep. through their creeds and confessions. I understand that the that Catholic should be considered in the context of the timeline, whether it refers to the Roman Catholic or the universal church. But could you discuss this time period and guide me on how to understand and read these writings? Yeah, the early church, that that would be considered probably prior to the 5th century. Then you get into the Middle Ages. Then you get into the Reformation period. Then you would say that we get into liberal Protestant period. And now we are in the evangelical period, at least in the West, in the U.S. What what do we do with these dead guys? It depends on which dead guy you're talking about. It's it's a, a little bit of a, I don't know the paradox, but there's some tension in in understanding church history. The further back you go, on the one hand, 
it might be better information about the faith because they're nearer the source. On the other hand, because they're so close to the launching of Christianity, we see in the first four centuries an, an outworking of the faith. What? How do we make this thing work? Nestorianism, we got to deal with that. The docetism, we got to define the nature of Jesus Christ. And so you've got guys who were early on, so they they had some really good insights. And on the other hand, some not so sophisticated insights. Take Augustine or Augustine, if you're from Florida, the you, a Catholic can find things that he likes and a Protestant can find things that he loves. Why? Well, because he was kind of advancing. He was he was evolving in his theology. So you have to be super careful when you go back to those guys. Catholics claim them, Protestant claim, Protestants claim them. And so you're right to say, what about the timeline here? I, I would say that prior to the fifth century, we'll just call it the fifth century, it's tidy, even though it's not that clean of a break. That's probably closer, maybe even fourth century, universal church where you, you didn't have a papacy as we know it today. Rome wasn't the center of authority. That came, we'll call it the 400s. And, then, and it progressively got wonkier. So now what do you do? You've got a St. Thomas Aquinas. What do you do with him? Even Middle Ages guy. Well, he had some good stuff. He was Catholic, so he was in a bad system at that time. And so you've got to use your Bible to filter. We've got to be Bereans, even with the dead guys. Now, having said that, I would say this. You're, you're, you're probably having to be slightly less Berean, slightly less. We're never not Berean, slightly less Berean when it comes to the reformers. But even so, you see an evolving of their theology. You're going to love this one, my Lutheran friends. But I believe that if Luther had lived longer, maybe you wouldn't be baptizing your babies. Maybe. Because even his theology, you see it advancing. He admitted that himself when he was on trial at the Diet of Worms. And sometimes he wrote poorly. They're just, but anything that's biblical, he stood by. He evolved. Calvin evolved, but less, less wonkiness going on than, say, the Middle Ages or sometimes in the early church. What about the Puritans? You're pro because it's getting, it's not that it's because they're closer to us, but it's because they've had more time and they've been able to look back and they could read the reformers. Aha, uh -huh. they could read Aquinas. They could read Augustine or Augustine if you're from Florida. Which way do I do that anyway? I can, I can, I'll be honest with you. I never remember which is which. Yeah, I don't either. I, Busnitz has told me like 800 times and I'm like, uh, the amen, because I don't, Augustine <laughs> Sir, it's because they are they are have a view that's better. Now that also means that you and I, if we make that criticism of the early church and the early church fathers, we have to make it of ourselves, because there is an advantage to being closer to the source material, to the source of Jesus Himself, and yet there is an advantage of having a collective body of work where we can look at it and examine it, hopefully without using AI. So we need to have a little bit of humility when it comes to making claims. This is definitively the way that this issue stands. So what do you do with all of that? Act like a Berean. And this is what the reformers were all about. Your authority is, is not Athanasius. Your authority is the Bible. 
Use that as your litmus test, no matter how accredited the theologian is, and send whatever you want to idea at wretched.org. All right. This next question is from Anonymous. Uh, uh, Todd, what uh, what can I find in the Bible um, about soldiers going to war and having to kill people? Nah. Uh, well, you open your Old Testament and you see lots of them. There are oodles of soldiers that go to war. God commands soldiers to go to war. So it is not innately sinful. And so we start by recognizing it isn't necessarily a sin to be in the military. Now, uh, some of us have adopted, speaking of Aquinas, the just war theory that says it, you, it, it's, it, it's not a sin if you participate in the military if these components exist. If they don't, then you got yourself a little bit of a problem. Having said that, we see in the Old Testament soldiers, they marched to war. The New Testament, we see that that's really underneath the auspices of the government, but we don't have any prohibitions for for people being soldiers. I think one of the issues that really needs, it's pretty basic, but I think we tend to forget about it. We just, well, you're killing somebody. Well, it's it's not necessarily a sin to take somebody's life as long as it's just. If you're murdering somebody, which would mean you're participating in something unjust, that would be a sin. But because we see that God gives orders, he told the Jewish people, the children of Israel, to march into the land, clean that place out. God could not have been commanding them to sin. If you're in the military, do a, just Google just war theory. You'll read five or six pillars uh, that make the foundation of determining, am I in a system that is behaving justly? And if you determine thumbs up, I, it certainly is then you should have no compunctions about doing your tests in the military. And for your service, believe me, the tens and tens of people listening to this year Wretched Radio program say thank you very much. This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched Things break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. We start in the world of politics. It looks as if though we've moved from reason debates to shouting matches like you see between kindergartners on the playground. Well, much of the same is happening in the hallowed halls of Congress. During a recent speech, House Majority Leader Steve Scalise was in mid-discussion with House Minority Whip Catherine Clark when someone shouted, your bills are racist. Turns out that didn't come from the galley. No, that came from a fellow colleague. Representative Cori Bush, a Democrat from Missouri, was the one who shouted. She owned up to the disruption later on when she posted on Twitter or X or whatever it is we're supposed to be calling it these days. Well, in the corporate world, here's some news from Anheuser-Busch. We haven't talked about them lately, but the beer giant is planning to lay off 400 employees as its sales of Bud Light continue to decline after their partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney did not go the way they thought it would. Yeah, you know, the thought process of people is pretty tough to figure out, especially those who like to indulge in a cold beer after a hard day at the office. Who would have thought they just wanted that cold beer and not a lesson in gender ideology? <laughs> a lesson learned, a tough lesson learned for those at Anheuser Bush. And let's do seriously be praying for those who lost their jobs because that's never a situation you want anyone to have to go through. 
From the world of education, several Virginia school districts have pushed back against Governor Glenn Youngkin's new model school policies, which some see as a return to biological reality over subjective gender identity. The policies say that schools shall respect parents' values and beliefs, but apparently school systems in Arlington and Alexandria City feel differently. They say they have no intentions to follow the governor's policy. Isn't it nice when those in the public education realm feel like they have no reason to respect parental authority, but yet then they expect parents to have respect for theirs? If you thought we were traveling down a two-way street, you thought wrong. Meanwhile, in the world of sports, the FIFA Women's World Cup is taking place. Bet you didn't know that. At least I didn't. And it's turned into a whirlwind of controversy. The Canadian national team has fielded their first openly transgender player who goes by the name of Quinn. Just Quinn, one name. And recently, as they squared off against Nigeria, accusations of cheating from Nigerian politicians begin to surface. Piers Morgan also joined in the fracas, questioning how Quinn, just Quinn, could identify as both non-binary and transgender. That's a question I think I have too. I mean, I'm not an expert in calculus or anything, but that equation doesn't add up. And that's been today's Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible. Haggai was a prophet around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. When the efforts to rebuild the temple had stopped, Haggai encouraged the people to continue and reminded them of God's presence among them and the importance of assembling together to worship. When you consider your priorities, give careful attention to the worship of God. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Jimmy, you're going to thank me for this idea. This is Wretched Radio. There are two kind of two ways that you can communicate with us. You can send an email, idea at wretched.org, or you can call the toll-free 1-877-282-BEEP. Jimmy, uh-huh. let's have people text. Okay. Here's why that's a blessing for you. They're going to be pithy because uh- text. You know, it's just weird to send a long text, which is like three sentences. Right. So we should set up a texter machine where people can send whatever they want. Okay, hold on. I don't I don't remember your cell phone number offhand. I mean, I gotta look it up. I have to look it up. Hold on. That's funny. I was I was thinking your cell phone (laughs) number. No, 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 no. All right, fine. Call or email (laughs) idea at wretched.org. Keep it as pithy as you would a text if you'd be so kind. All right. This question, first question is from Toby, who says, Todd. I'm Toby, an avid listener from the UK, and lately I've been pondering biblical interpretation and how to determine if something is a sin issue or merely a difference in understanding. With so many interpretations and doctrines, how can we distinguish sin from differing perspectives? Who's interpreting Scripture correctly? Well, that's easy. I am. (laughs) I am. Wait, no, I am. No, me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's start with hermeneutics, shall we? Let's make sure that we're actually translating, translating, interpreting the Bible the way that it was meant to be interpreted. We need to get away from the reader and we need to focus on the author. What is his intention? What is he trying to communicate? That is a great start. Practice grammatical, historical, biblical hermeneutics. Hey, we've got a resource called Herman Who available at wretched.org. Having said that, that doesn't mean that there won't be differences of opinion. Start with the clear stuff. Start with the big stuff. And just have that nailed first. Then I would encourage you 
to study 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and Romans 12, because you're going to read about a little something called adiaphoron, man, where there are disputable dispensations. There are things neither commanded nor forbidden. There are some things they just are. Now, there are times when it might be a sin, but you let your brothers and sisters in the context of a local church help you with that. But you need to remember there are some clear prohibitions. There are very clear commandments. Get those under your belt. But then recognize, oh, there's liberty here in Christianity, which, by the way, Jimmy, I don't know that I don't know that we sell it. We maybe even give it away at this point. Uh, a resource called Christian Liberty. Mm-hmm. It's a broad swath. It is a large number of areas where there is freedom for the Christian to make decisions. So I wouldn't say to you, just study your Bible so that you can make the perfect call on everything. You you should do that. But you should also recognize there are adiaphoron. And if you don't remember that, then you're probably going to find yourself in a fair amount of fights and you will be in a perpetual state of, is this a sin? Am I not saying it? You should always try to work through those things, but you should remember that there is liberty in Christianity and you are free to send an email to idea at wretched.org. All right. This next one's from Tim who says, Todd, I I would like to know the difference between preaching and teaching Mm -hmm. and how, uh, how they both should be expressed. The church I attend, um, is doctrinally sound, but I feel like a lack of emphasis sometimes is on God's love for me during the sermons, making them feel lifeless and dry. Can you shed some light on this? Yeah, that was that's a lot there. There's one word that defines the difference between preaching and teaching. Here it is. You can write it down. You'll be able to get this if you speak Hebrew. Preaching has... It's got some force. It, it, it contains some elements that teaching doesn't. You can teach biblically as flat as a pancake, as, as, as monotone as that one, as Martina Navratilova, when she comments on a tennis match, I'm telling you, oh, somebody please work with the Martina on her commentary. It, teaching is just, here's the information. So I can tell you to turn to your Bible in Galatians, if you would like to see why we don't add works, law to gospel. I could even do it more monotone than that. That's teaching. Preaching, it's on fire. It's logic on fire, said uh, the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's got some stuff. Now, please note, if you go listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wasn't like growling from the, but he spoke with authority. So it can sound different, but it must have an element of authority and, and it must push people to render a verdict. It does need to contain teaching. That is certain. It should also inspire. It should move. It should affect. So if your pastor is spending a lot of time on God's love, I don't think that's a terrible thing. But there should be some sort of application, another component of preaching that distinguishes it from teaching, and some sort of pushing. You, you, you need to respond to this. All right, here's an example of doing that. And I'm not saying that he's preaching, but this is an example of it. And it doesn't need to sound fiery. I'm thinking of Greg Gifford when he is counseling somebody for our Transform TV series. He'll teach about a subject. Uh, do you understand that this is what God says versus what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Are you prepared to do it God's way? Okay, that, that should be in preaching. 
he he ain't yelling, but that's that's a I want your response to be called out. Will you do this thing? That is the difference among many other things between preaching and teaching. If your pastor you feel is out of balance, be careful. Be careful. You're 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 treading into some waters that are going to be pretty choppy because he might have some considerations of which you are not aware. And furthermore, the balance of how much of each one of these components, that's tricky business. And there's room in, in inside of a sermon to have different balances at different times. I'm thinking about Steve Lawson's Expositor magazine. He talks about these different components regularly. Now, you might be inclined, you could read, by the way, every pastor should get that magazine. You might be inclined to read one where he's talking about um, inspiration, that somehow you should be inspired uh, to desire to do stuff. Okay, so that's all my sermon is about? No, 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 no. There's there's other things too. So you read another one of his expositor editions, and it's something preaching repentance. Oh, okay, so the whole thing needs to be about right. It's a balance. And every pastor has the liberty to choose that balance based on his position of authority. Idea at wretched.org. All right, this one is from Anonymous, who says, Todd, why isn't the book of Enoch in the Bible, even though it's referenced in Jude? Yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, yes, it is. That's not, that is not Jude saying this book is inspired writ. It never met the read. It never measured up to the standard that the early church set. And so just because there's a truism and there was something that was said in the book, that is, that is not an endorsement of authenticity that it's inspired scripture. Paul quotes a Cretan philosopher. They're all lazy brutes. Okay, was that philosopher inspired? You go, well, no. Bingo. Idea at wretched.org. All right. Uh, This uh, one is from um, uh, Janae, who says, Todd, as someone who is firmly pro-life, I am uncertain about how to handle ectopic pregnancies. Mm. I believe that abortion is not the solution, yet in this case, I'm unsure how to reconcile it. Uh, by, By defining terms. An ectopic pregnancy, it endangers the life of the mother. If in the effort of saving the life of one patient, the other patient is lost, we call that a tragedy. But that is not an abortion, which is the intentional taking of an innocent human life. That is not what is being done. So the next time ectopic pregnancy comes up, well, should we abort that? The answer is no, we should save the life of the mother. And then we mourn because the life of a child has been lost. Idea at wretched.org. By the way, uh-huh. I just saw Mike Pence mm-hmm. say, oh, what was it that, that that was getting him in hot water? First of all, he's at the very least wants a 15-week prohibition. After 15 weeks, he can't abort. I say, wrong. So to his credit, he's saying at least. No, a life is a life is a life, no matter how developed or big or little it is. But he was also saying, that, oh, I know, it was for genetic abnormalities. Got to give him props on this one. I don't know if you're a Mike Pence fan or not, but he was at least being consistent on the issue of children who could be born with deformities or, 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 or that would not potentially live very long. It's still a life. It's still a human being. We seems that we don't talk much about the life issue these days as much as we should. I mean, I know here we talk about preborn.org slash wretched so that you can support the preborn network of clinics, save babies' lives, and 
mommies and daddies hear the gospel, preborn.org slash wretched. We do that here. But there hasn't been much talk about life, and there doesn't seem to be as much focus in evangelical Christianity these days to use the life issue as a litmus test issue for what do we have, 12, 13 different candidates right now in the Republican primaries? We got to get back to that. I would also add to the list now of litmus test issues. You got to get the whole gender and marriage business. And, and let me just say, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody or anything. The primaries are the time to do that. Those are the big issues. Those are more, it's like, you've got a candidate running. Well, he's mostly against the Holocaust. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Big problem. Now, when we have to vote for two, we'll vote for the lesser of two evils. But now is the time to get back to using some of the crucial biblical litmus test issues. This is Wretched Radio. Busy, busy, busy. Last year, Preborn Ministries provided over 92,000 ultrasounds, 54,000 babies were saved, 69 ultrasound machines were placed, 10,000 people responded to the gospel. Preborn Ministries, very busy, saving babies, saving souls. Would you please consider partnering with Preborn Ministries? $28 per ultrasound, five ultrasounds, $140. Yes, they are expensive, but they save lives. And Preborn Ministries uses good equipment with trained specialists, which is why the success rates are so staggeringly high at saving lives with preborn. Please consider supporting preborn at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. Hey, thanks for joining us here on Wretched Radio today. Now, look, I know you love our resources and all of the good stuff we have at wretched.org. I do too. But let me ask you another question. Have you considered becoming an ongoing monthly Wretched Gospel partner? Because when you do that, you can help us reach millions all over the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hey, look, it's tax deductible. You can't beat that. It's like those combos. You remember those combos, those pizza pretzel things? I'm probably the only one. But anyway, here's one promise that I can make to you. You never have to worry about the money you donate to Wretched because look, we're not just making quality productions around here. We're also stewarding God's money as if eternity depended on it. And we do it all with a very high view of scripture. We don't mess around with any of that unbiblical stuff around here. So join us, become a Wretched Gospel partner and help us to reach millions of people all over the world with the gospel. Just visit wretched.org slash donate. Wretched, amazing grace, amazing gospel. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? 
Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Attributes of God God is incomprehensible. Finite humans cannot fully comprehend the one who created everything. Yet he has revealed himself in the Bible. And while we cannot know him exhaustively, we can know what is true about him. And once we are reconciled through Christ, we will never stop learning about him. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Please do not text the following number. Why can't we get that set up, though, Jimmy? Could we do that? I think so. That would be very cool. This is Wretched Radio. I wonder if you'd send more stuff because you probably find things on your phone and it's a bit of a hassle. Copy the address. Instead, you could just go boom, send a text to idea at wretched.org. We'll get to work on that. In the meantime, call us 1 877 282. Is it right to break off with a friend who has deconstructed what Christianity you thought your friend had? Not necessarily. You might if he becomes bad for you. Any sort of relationship that involves an unbeliever, you must be in the position where you are having more influence over him or her than they are over you. Otherwise, it's probably a bad dynamic and you should remove yourself from that relationship. But otherwise, we're friends with unbelievers. We can have relationships with people who have even deconstructed. In fact, I would tell you, well, that could be your ministry. Somebody that you know who once professed Christ now denies him. That's a great opportunity to evangelize that person. So we're in the world. We don't, we don't, we don't become besties or go into business or get married to unbelievers. But that is not to suggest that we cannot have friends who aren't Christians. Dear Mr. Freel, and yes, that is one Mr. Because... This guy's, I think he insulted you. This guy's loaded, and I don't mean from alcohol. <laughs> I'm just, there's just something that he's got in his barrel that I have a funny feeling is going to come shooting out in my direction. Dear Mr. Freel, and yes, that is one, Mr., because I have a bone to pick with you. You said know it. that you use antiperspirant. God didn't design your body to not sweat, but to sweat. Let it cool, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time for a new denomination. That's all I know about this. We're going to be we're going to be presenting a video. I'm thinking it's next week about the AI worship thing. A few of you have sent in, "Hey, what about this with AI generated worship? What about that?" So we're going to try to present 10 pros and 10 cons. I'll try not to tip my hand. I think it's a terrible idea. But that <laughs> I'm not good at not tipping my hand. The, the 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 debate will almost certainly engender division and acrimony. It's almost it's a guarantee, and so is the difference between. Can I use deodorant, sir? What what sort of confessional armpit <laughs> statement do you have for this new thing that you're building here? One eight seven seven two eight two beep. One eight seven seven two eight two. Hey Todd, just a question. Um, our pastor resigned about a month ago preaching is done by uh, supply preachers 
and it's getting real tough to listen to. And I'm wondering, is it right to go to another church where I know there's sound preaching taking place until we find a new pastor at my local congregation? Maybe, maybe not. Want to be super dedicated to your church. They go through transitions. And you could be a great pillar in testimony, especially if you've been there for a long time, that you endure it. Now, you said we, so I'm assuming there's other people involved in your family, like your wife and children. Then I would say that it is incumbent upon you to feed them through other sources than just Sunday morning. But I'd be slow to leave your church while they're in transition. Having said that, I don't think there's anything wrong in approaching the elders to say, where are we at? How hard are we working on this? Because you do have a responsibility to your family to make sure that they are in a house where they are being taught well from the word of God. So it, there's, there's, no, there's no hard and fast rules to this. Be thoughtful. Be slow to leave your church. It is okay to hold your elders accountable because if they're like, well, you know, we think it's working out pretty good. I think we need to meet and discuss this because I am the one who is primarily responsible for my wife and children. And then you can make a decision based on that. Always be slow to leave your local church, unless, of course, they go all wonky. one 282 Hey, John, this is John in Boise, Idaho. I, I just was hearing your program where you were lamenting the loss of membership at the SBC. And well, I, I would agree with you that on the surface, if they're leaving the body of Christ, that's obviously a horrendous thing, and we pray that that doesn't happen. But on the flip side, if they're just fed up with the SBC garbage and they just find another place to worship, isn't that a valid move? In other words, is it all doom and gloom? Again, you know what? I guess I would give the exact same response. To, to the fellow asking about leaving a church where they're in transition, where pulpits supply. I think that was a band from the 80s, except that pastor would ask if he's preaching and not teaching, you're all out of love. See what I did right there? <laughs> I would say it's the same principles and rules. Yeah, it might be that it's time for you to go. You can make that decision. Do it with plenty of prayer, doing it with plenty of consultation. Another question that needs to be asked, when your church is like, or denomination is kind of faltering a little bit, what can you contribute to it? If you have the ability to help or to fix, you're in a much better position to stay and contribute to that. But if it's going off the rails and you're not an elder or a deacon or you're not even volunteering very much, um, then you're probably not going to be able to bring about much change. one 282 beep one 282 Hi, Todd. I have three young children, and my oldest is three. She's nearing the age of understanding, I believe. I have been burdened over the last few weeks about the fact that when I think about Christ's coming, the first initial feeling I have is anxiety over the salvation mm -hmm. of my children. Is that a wrong first feeling to have when thinking about Christ's coming, or is that a natural um, spurring of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you know what? It, you know, it certainly could be both things. I, I, Of course we worry about the salvation of our children, but let's just take a look at that and maybe, just maybe, this will be helpful for you to maybe decrease your anxiety just a little bit. Rather than using the age of accountability, let's talk levels because everybody's maturity, it advances at different rates. So to, to say it's three, it's 13, I think is a little bit 
dangerous because individuals are just that. So we talk about a level of accountability. Now, what do they? What's the accountability? What's the factor? What are the criteria? Well, I think it's understanding that they are willfully sinning against God. That's the biggie, because I firmly, not kind of, firmly believe, whether it's a baby in the womb, a newborn child, or somebody who has such processing, uh, I'm sorry, I... I don't know that this is if this is improper speak these days. I don't I don't mean to be offensive, but somebody who is mentally retarded and they don't know that they're willfully sinning against God, they are not accruing a sin debt. They have to have that knowledge. When does that knowledge descend? It's different for every single child. Now know this when they get to that level. You should still be longing for the return of Jesus because if your child who is now accountable, whatever age that happens to be, if they're not a Christian, you're then then that's on them. It's not on you. Remember, salvation is of the Lord. You can't get your kids saved. You can't get them lost either. You can't get your kids saved. So yeah, you should be desiring that they get saved. But if they reach that level and they're not saved, I would I would intensify my efforts. I would make it an even more urgent matter. But I would encourage you to not feel angst or the responsibility for them not responding to the good news that Jesus died for sinners. Hello, John. So I had a question. What is people's gripe about C.S. Lewis? There's actually a number of them that people have to varying degrees. Uh, his, his, his view of the Bible was less than robust. He had a view that not not all of it was necessarily inspired, if I recall correctly. I'm, I'm not a student of C.S. Lewis. Some of his justification theology was like, sup with that? And yet you had a guy who wrote so brilliantly and so insightfully and so helpfully. What would I do with C.S. Lewis? I think a couple of things, depending on who you are. Number one, if you're a mature Christian, eat the meat, spit out the bones, and be aware. You've got to be a Berean. Even if you're reading the Chronicles of Narnia, you still have to be a Berean. Is he saying anything in here that's wonky? If you just Google C.S. Lewis, did Google C.S. Lewis and like false teaching or heresy, you'll find and read it and see what so you can be on the aware, on, on the alert for those things. If you're mature, then feel free to eat the meat and spit out the bones. If you're not very mature yet, you might not want to do that because your theology might be poorly informed because you ain't, you ain't, that's right, I just said ain't, able to discern. Like, I can't discern good grammar. Then you might want to avoid him. If you're a pastor, might I suggest, because I've seen this, there's a lot of people that love C.S. Lewis, and there's a lot of people that don't and are very concerned. If you're going to quote him, I might suggest you avoid giving credit. If it's a longer quote, I would think long and hard about using it because otherwise you're going to have to do a disclaimer that's about as long as my answer. All right, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. Now, I know some of you feel a certain way because in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion represent, and that might be a bit of a waste of time. Furthermore, you won't say anything that will make some folks feel better about him. They feel that strongly about it. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing. Again, I'm not a student of C.S. Lewis. I just know uh, that, that he's a little bit of a landmine in that regard in contemporary evangelical Christianity. So all that to say, he's got lots of really fine stuff. Be aware there's other stuff. And you determine whether or not you should consume it preach it or not. And until tomorrow, go serve your king. <laughs>